0: We are influential leaders, movers and shakers. This is Alexander Kehne, and we are presenting a new episode of The Influential Executive. Today, Lenka and I speak to India, Gary Martin. And this lady is a real powerhouse. She used to have a very high role in one of the world's largest banks. And right now, she's active as a coach She helps executives to achieve their goals, to get more done with less resources. And well, you're gonna learn about India. She is straight to the point. She knows what she wants. She knows what's important and she manages to communicate that. India works hard to promote women in business. She monitors the gender pay gap. She dares to ask questions that most people aren't asking. She focuses on diversity. What can diversity do to improve leadership in a business in terms of gender, in terms of race. And how to have a successful career as a woman. More on that later. First, a quick note about the sponsorship of this episode. This is brought to you by Earn More, Work Less. We help organizations and individuals work stress-free we do that with simple strategies find out more on our website earnmoreworkless.com there's a blog there's podcasts there's free downloads a lot of good world-class education because no matter how busy we are we need to keep educating ourselves we need to keep learning because that's the only way to make things easier for ourselves and for others Because the only alternative is to just keep doing the same thing. For now, here comes India Gary Martin. Enjoy the interview. India, welcome to the Influencia Executive
1: Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Thank you for being here. We heard that you've been on a crazy travel schedule. And yet here you are, looking full of energy, ready to go.
1: Yeah, I always always say that, you know, you should never complain about abundance. Like we're busy and we're running around, but I never complain about abundance because the opposite is not terribly exciting. So I'll take the abundance any day and be (laughs) grateful for it. And yes, my travel schedule has been crazy, but I've been able to get, you know, lots of interesting stuff done and speak at a number of different conferences and, and just, you know, really enjoy International Women's Day, which is really what's had me on the hop over the last week or so.
0: International Women's Day meant a lot to you over the past week. What what, what does that mean? What have you been doing with that?
1: Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that my work around women in business. I mean, I've, I've been really heavily in the space and, and kind of been out there as a vocal advocate um, for women in business and just, you know, ascent onto boards, but more even representation um, in the senior ranks of leadership of, of you know, major corporations since uh, probably the late 90s or early 2000. I know my skin looks very clear, so you'd never guess that I've been doing that for this long, <laughs> but, but I have, um, but I have. I, that was like my my own compliment to myself, um, but no, but I have and and um, you know International Women's Day in the U.S. They, it's actually International Women's Month, which is which is amazing. Okay. Um, but in the UK, which is you know where I spent the last twenty years before coming back to the U.S. about eighteen months ago, um, International Women's Day and the week kind of leading up to. Um, has driven a lot of activity and it's really in celebration of the contribution that women make to economy, to business, to life, to culture, um, to everything. And so, you know, I I spent, I think I did four separate speaking engagements last week um, around International Women's Day and International Women's Month. Um, And so it's just, it's just a great time to really re-engage and reinvigorate and get engaged with women who are, um, who are kind of doing some of the same things.
2: And what were some of the key topics that you spoke about on these conferences or events?
1: Um, so th- there were quite a few, <laughs> um, but I would say mostly it's about the fact that, you know, for women, it's kind of, it's our time to kind of step up and, and take our place in the natural order of things. Um, sorry, Alexander, but, you know, that's just kind of how it is. <laughs> no, just I, just
0: I, um, I welcome every woman in decision-making position. I love it. I, I, like there's such a huge lack of empathy in the business world. It's really there embarrassing, is. frankly.
1: There is. And, you know, I think that um, that one of the things that we have to make sure um, that we consider and one of the things I talked about quite a lot is that, you know, we have some real issues around the gender pay gap. And the fact that women who do the same jobs don't get paid the same amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at that compounded over time, um, the gap is only widening. And it makes it more difficult for women to be able to engage meaningfully. I mean, we still have to do the work, but we're not getting paid for it. And this is a conversation that's been going on for 40 years, frankly. You know, and, at the, and the rate of change is far too slow. And, and now, in the UK at least, um, it's mandated that organizations publish um, their gender pay gap. And that's a big deal because that kind of pressure organizations don't want because women are shareholders too, you know? And so you, if you look at an organization that you have been investing in and spending your time in as an external shareholder who has huge gaps in pay between what they pay men and women for the same job, then there's some questions and there's some external pressures that organizations have to face. Um, And so a lot of, a lot of what I talked about this week was that, um, but also just, you know, women's place in the world and how women are, um, ascending on the political landscape in terms of trying to help to shape some of the mess that's happening around the world um particularly in the u.s and europe where you know you have brexit on one hand and kind of a very interesting administration on the other in the u.s that's all i'll say about that um that that, that you know where you're seeing women step up and kind of raise their voices to ensure that women's rights are represented on both sides of the pond for this very same issues is really interesting they always say that um that the U.S. sneezes and the U.K. catches a cold. And so, you know, there's, there's so much in parallel politically and economically that's happening in those places that, that unfortunately the ramifications across Europe um, will be pretty huge, particularly, you know, if Brexit happens or when Brexit happens and what that means for women and trade and a whole bunch of other things.
0: Women in business, I, I'm very happy to zoom in on that topic. And um, You know, I when, when I look at, at the world and how everything is designed, you know, there's male energy, there's female energy together. They're an integral part of a whole. And it's only in, in collaboration that you get an ideal outcome. So suppose you could draft the ideal business right now with a blank, sheet of paper what would it mean for the leadership team how would that look and how do you picture those interactions and decision-making
1: processes so actually you know that's a really interesting question because you know there's another there's another there are a couple of other things that are missing when you think about what leadership looks like Um, so gender is just one but there's also ethnicity and there are the other things on the on the diversity spectrum and if you look at um, the particularly, I mean, Western countries, right? If you look at the at the ethnic makeup of those countries and the representation, um, and similarly to that of women in boardrooms and senior leadership and executive teams, it's it's not the right mix. And so, what we're losing there are a couple of things. First is there's only going to be a certain, it's only going to go so long before you can't help it. Right. And, and folks that just the sheer numbers don't support the ability to be able to be exclusive in the way that businesses have for a very long time. Um, but that, you know, but we still have some way to go because the power structure still exists. Um, but in terms, I mean, you know, we're missing a huge trick. So like, for example, um, in the U S J.P. Morgan Chase, who I used to work for, I mean, I don't now, and I'm, I never did I think, I mean, I loved the I liked the firm when I was there, but never did I think I'd become like the poster girl for talking about J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, but they have, um, they have something they've created called Advancing Black Pathways. And it's, it's, it's how you engage those customers in your community that you, tri- you typically hadn't, that were underrepresented, but that, who bank with you, um, and how you build those relationships to create, um, to create, frankly, customer and corporate value. And so they've done this and now literally, and this is, I mean, it's kind of strange, but literally there are so many um, African-American people in the United States who are looking at Chase as as their banking option because somebody paid attention to the specific needs of that community. And it's, you know, there are millions of African-Americans in this country. And so my point is, in any of the places that we're talking about, and as any of the Western democracies, um, culturally, and I'm not just talking about, you know, people of African descent, it could be anything culturally, um, we're so diverse that we're missing huge tricks in terms of even driving our own revenues, in terms of what that leadership looks like. And some of the decisions those leadership, that kind of leadership, diverse leadership would take, um, that could really catapult companies in ways they hadn't even thought of from a business revenue perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's pure logic. Um, I I read an interesting article in uh, a Dutch newspaper earlier this week, and it was written by a female politician, and she argued. Um, she said, shouldn't we just drop the more women in leadership roles discussion? Because we've been saying this for many years, and it seems that women don't really step up. Maybe women, maybe, maybe there's just a lower percentage of women who want that type of role, want that type of responsibility. And, you know, maybe we've just been aiming too high. What is your perspective
1: on that? Uh, let me think. I'm trying to keep my language clean. Uh, (laughs) I, I, I just think that that is, you know, it just kind of feeds into the typical power structures as far as I'm concerned, that is primarily male and primarily European. And I'm just very, you know, I don't believe that there aren't women who want to do this stuff, but I do believe that there is, unfortunately, and this is the same with people of of various ethnicities and, again, other things on the diversity spectrum, um, there's a bicultural competency that we have to have that men do not. And that is being able to navigate um, what's happening in their world and play by their rules, because they set the structure and set the rules. So if you don't play by their rules, then it's really difficult to move through right and so i think the challenge is not the willingness or ability or even women who want to do it it's not necessarily having the bicultural competence to know how to play the game and know the things that you need to do and there aren't enough senior women in positions of power to be able to relay what that looks like so people are kind of you know finding it as they go and and you can only you know if you're only one of a couple, there's only so much you can do in terms of, you have a ladder and you are trying to pull people up behind you, but you also have to kind of do your job. So it's kind of balanced between doing both, right? And so I think that it's an issue of ensuring that women understand the structures as they exist now, knowing that, you know, once, if they're, you know, when we get to a point where there are a lot more women in place, those structures will start to shift and change. And that requirement will become less. But we have the additional barrier of having to understand how the game is played, which is not natural to us um, because it's based on kind of more male patriarchal behaviors.
0: Uh, That's interesting. So indeed, it's the current leadership that set the rules and guidelines that defined what the structures look. And that would be completely different if there would have been a bigger female influence uh, on defining those. So now what we need is just the people setting these uh, structures to open their minds and to understand also why it is so valuable to create more diversity. Because mm. when, the, when there's that business trigger saying, hey, if we still want to be leading in five or 10 years from now, we better be leading the diversity revolution as well, because we know that that's where the value is. Are there already examples of organizations who really made this a priority?
1: Uh no. I mean, yes. But but no, what I <laughs> what I was really I know I'm like I'm I'm full of jokes today. I think it's um I think it's it's that really, let me take a step back before I answer that. There's no real incentive for people to do this as far as they're concerned, because folks who are in the power structures right now are perfectly comfortable with the way they look right now and are perfectly comfortable with how they're compensated in those power structures and perfectly com- perfectly comfortable with their own trajectory within those current power structures. So there's very little um, incentive for them to want to shift that, right? And typically, the folks who are... In have the most control are closer to the end of their careers and care a lot less about what it looks like for the people behind them, just given the fact that, you know, capitalism drives that kind of behavior, frankly. And I'm not not suggesting that we all become socialists or common. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are certain types of behaviors that are associated with capitalism, which means that there's very little incentive to want to support the whole and ensure that other people get an opportunity. That's not what that structure encourages, mm-hmm. right? So if we start there, um, and you're asking about organizations who have done that, I think it's very challenging to point to organizations that don't have particularly big ones, right? Mm-hmm. If you're talking about kind of the big, large, multinational corporates, people are making effort to, to start to kind of get more women on boards and get more women in leadership. Um, but the reality around how much change has happened as a result, I think it's too early to tell. Because it is, I mean, like we're really only talking, you know, six or seven years of any kind of concerted effort around making those shifts. So I think, you know, in, in the next five or seven, you know, we should start to see some of that change, but kind of that level of change takes time in terms of the of, of manifestation of, of outcome in a, on, a, on a broader base scale. And so I've, I'm afraid that I can't specifically point to examples that I think are shining but I do think that there are shining examples of organizations that are trying to make very specific statements and strides around addressing the issues.
2: Okay. Now, in the on a personal level, what can all women out there do to become successful, better in business, or really having those big um, executive roles? Because you're a bright example of them, so what could you recommend?
1: Ooh, I mean, you know, the reality is, for us, it's five times harder. And it is. And I say that because for most women, and I'm not saying this isn't true of men, but it is very true for a lot of women. Um, we often have care responsibilities, either for children or elders, um, which makes it incredibly difficult to be able to make some of the choices that our male counterparts can make more easily, just based upon kind of societal norms. Um, You know, for example, I remember I use this quite frequently. Um, There was a big crisis going on in one of the organizations that I worked in, and I was on the senior leadership team. And um, my boss said, "Okay, we're going to have to fly out to Tokyo tomorrow. And I was like, "Uh, I have three kids, a husband, people, friends, I got to deal with. And I had to remind him, I was like, you know that wife you have at home? I was like, I'm her when I get home. And so, you know, you have that person there all the time. But when I get home, I do all the things that your wife does. Plus, I'm here all day. And so, you know, that that pressure, especially as you become more senior, is a lot for women. And like, I have tremendous mother guilt about having to be traveling and working and doing things. And whereas my husband, he's amazing. He's an amazing dad, but he has zero dad guilt when he has to travel. Like, he's not like, oh, I wish I didn't have to travel because the kids would be. He's like, woohoo, I get a break from these crazy people. And so, you know, it's kind of, you know, I think that the thing that women have to face is just a bit more challenging because we have to balance often, you know, unless we have husbands who stay at home. And I will say that I know a lot of senior executive women whose husbands actually do stay at home with their families because it enables them to go off and do the things they need to do. Um, there's a lot of pressure and it's really incredibly difficult. So the success thing, I think, is one that you have to define for yourself. I think you have to define what success looks like for you. And if success for you looks like having a great career And also being able to have a family or being a carer, then you have to understand that there's some choices that you're making and that perhaps you're not going to be able to ascend to the most senior level roles because they just, it requires, your clients, for example, don't care but your kid has a play or that you have to go to your child's match or that, you know, whatever it might be, or but you have to take your parents to a a doctor's appointment. They don't care, right? They're driven by what the client demands and needs, especially if you're in client-facing businesses right then. So I say success is um, what you define it as for yourself. And that may change at varying points in your career. Mm-hmm. And so my advice is just that you be true to the things that are most important to you. So if career is important to you, fine, do it and don't feel guilty about it. And know that you just need to get the support around it to, in place to help, you, to help you move through it. Um, if your family is more important to you, that's okay, too, and that's just as successful. Being a being a parent who is focused on their children and creating human beings that are going to change the world or shape the world or play some part in the world is as important a job as anything else.
2: Yeah. When you look back at your childhood, have you ever imagined that you are going to be so successful in the financial world and you are as well one of the Forbes um, members of the Forbes Coaches Council. Uh, have you ever imagined yourself
1: doing it? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I always thought I'd just, I didn't know what it would be. I didn't have any idea what it would be. I wanted to be an actress. You know, that was my whole thing. Like, I was like, I'm going to be on the stage and I'm going to sing and dance and, you know, everything else. And, and I'm not sure how much of that was the kind of natural thing that kids have about fame, you know, that whole thing, or whether it was actually my talent. <laughs> but, um, but that was what I wanted to do, I thought. And, and so this, for me, was quite accidental. I ended up kind of falling into it, more than it being something that I'd planned to do, you know, from the time I was a child. What I will say is that my parents and my grandparents always told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do. So what I didn't have were psychological barriers around what I could do. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I didn't have this, oh, I would never be able to do that, or I couldn't do that. I always thought I could do whatever I wanted to do, and that's kind of the way that I've always operated and encouraged my daughters and son actually to operate too.
2: And do you you see that that happens a lot um, in the women's world, those self-limiting beliefs that actually block us from doing what we really desire to do?
1: I think so. But I think that a lot of it is also breaking free of what our parents taught us mm. and what we saw as the norms in our own households. You know, so even though our mothers may have worked, I think that, you know, there are not a lot of folks in the generation above us, you know, who, or, or let's say people in there, my parents, for example, are in their 70s. And my mother is actually somebody who was quite not the norm in terms of her kind of going out and achieving and doing all kinds of things. But generally speaking, my friend's mothers weren't doing big, massive careers, right? They were, a lot of them stayed at home or they did jobs, which allowed them to take care of their kids more fully or whatever it was. And so the, the kind of corporate examples of people who, who of, of women weren't there pretty much in the generation before me. And so I think, I think that kind of drives a lot of, of what, that, what that looks like for people and what that looks like for women and how they shape and think about what, that, what their future will be.
0: Makes sense. I, I would like to uh, take a moment and step back into your leadership role. You, you, you were leading staff of 15,000 people spread over 40, 40 countries. And um, what I want to ask you is this: like, you work, you work closely with many people, and there's always all these different types of people to work with, right? And and then let let's take the two extreme opposites. You know, I've, I've also been leading a department of people, so it wasn't fifteen thousand of them, but it, you see this range of people. On the one hand, there are the people and they are a delight to work with; they are low effort, high reward for you as a leader. And then on the other side of the spectrum are people that cost a lot of energy and they bring really little to the table. Now in your experience, what, what are the one or two things that set those two apart? How can you instantly recognize where somebody belongs?
1: So I, I don't know if it's instant. And I, you know, I've always been very careful about rushing to judgment about people. Because typically if they're in a role, a leadership role, so most of the folks who reported to me were, were managing directors or senior people themselves, right? So there's a difference between personality and not necessarily jiving with somebody's personality and their capability. And you really have to... Um separate the two when you're making decisions about somebody's career and their livelihood, frankly, because there are people that I didn't particularly care for personally in terms of you know our personal interaction, um but they were really strong on the delivery of what they did and I think it's an incumbent upon you as a leader if you know, to understand who the people are on your team. And I'm talking your immediate team. You can't manage 15,000 people. You have to put the right folks in place to be able to do that, right? But for the seven or eight that reported to me, it's incumbent upon the leader to understand how their leadership style impacts the people who work with them and what you need to do and how you need to adjust as a leader to get the best out of each of your staff based upon their learning and or um, leadership style. Yeah, and so you know there are people who who are not coachable and who you can't support and in that case my thing is manage them out like you have to you have to create a team if you want a high performing team you have to create a team that works if you've gone through the steps of kind of separating your emotion from their ability you know kind of if you like them or not which doesn't frankly matter it's nice but it's not necessarily the end game um it's a matter of respect. Do you respect, can you respect them? And th- do they have the ability as opposed to do you like them? And they, and they have the ability. If you've done that work and you've done the work around um, trying to manage them in a way that you know suits their leadership style and you're still not successful, then it's time to kind of find something else for them to do. Yeah. But I think that as leaders, it's incumbent upon, it's not, it should not be about people always trying to fit you. If you're a leader, it's about how you manage people to get the best out of them.
0: Nice, nice. And what, what I like about this is that uh, this doesn't come from a frame, frame of mind where you want to change who somebody is. It comes from a frame of mind where you accept the person for who they are and then find your way to optimize that.
1: Well, you have to because you can't change people. Yeah. you know. And nobody. And the other thing is you don't want clones. You don't want a whole bunch of little yous running around. You want people who actually who, – it's good if people challenge you. You might not like the way they challenge you, but if there's somebody who says, I'm not doing that because that just doesn't feel right to me, then you need to have that conversation and you might not like the style, but, the, but the, what you have to consider is the value in what they're saying. Okay, actually, that doesn't sit right with this person. Why does it not? Am I missing something? Is there a blind spot I'm not paying attention to? What is it? And you have to take the emotion out of, you know, like again, whether you like or, like or don't like somebody or their style because you can be missing some real nuggets that help you Think through, you know, more diverse ways of coming to solutions. Um, if you're being judgmental about whether or not you like somebody and whether or not you think you can sit in a room with them for an hour, I think most of us could probably survive that.
2: Yeah. India, um, you work with lots of leaders, and I'm sure that you've been as well challenged with the new generation of millennials coming into higher positions. When you look at the skills that We millennials, we're as well millennials that we really want to develop in order to become good leaders. Which kind of skills are those?
1: Oh gosh, I think you know, first, let me start by saying I love millennials, (laughs) and um, second, (laughs) no, (laughs) that's that was a joke, that was one of my jokes. Um,
0: India loves millennials, everybody knows,
1: (laughs) I do actually. I think the thing, though, that millennials need to focus on is resilience. And that, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, is I think it's great that millennials are kind of don't have the barriers around, well, sure, I could be the CEO. Why wouldn't I? Why, wouldn't I? Why shouldn't I be able to do that in two weeks' time? <laughs> um, but, but there is, I mean, I think that's a great thing, though, because I think that what's happened, what millennials have forced is a shift around tenure as a requirement for leadership and that's a that is tremendous however i also think that i i would like to see millennials be a little bit more resilient in terms of disappointments around like when you don't get what you want right then you know it doesn't mean you stop or but you go to the next thing it's you know it's 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 how do you move around the barriers that are in your way as opposed to just kind of letting them go move on moving on you know, so I think, I think you know, like I love, I love the ambition of millennials and just kind of wanting to do, the, wanting to do so much and wanting to change the world, frankly. Um, but I do think there's a benefit of wisdom and experience that you could leverage, even if it's not your own because you're not of a space yet where you have it, ensuring that you get that information, that you leverage folks who've been there and done it, even if you don't necessarily agree with the methods. Are you talking about mentorship here? I mean, I guess you could be, but I, but I don't think, I don't think to test your ideas, it has to be with somebody in a mentoring relationship, right? I don't think that has to be the case. I think, you know, you can do that with people who just have the benefit of the experience of having done whatever it is. And it doesn't mean that you'll do it that way. But I I think when you're thinking about innovation and being creative, you want to, um, You want to make sure that you've explored all the paths? Like, how was it done before? And how do we make that better? As opposed to, here's my idea, let's go run with it. So what happened before? Like, kind of looking historically at what the challenges were or what were their successes? And how do we make those successes better and minimize the other things that that could impede us um, as we we innovate?
0: Exactly. What, What you just said reminds me of a matter that I would love to hear your opinion on. And this is about... Coaching in a business setting. So the reason I thought of this is yesterday I spoke to an entrepreneur in the Netherlands and he is on a journey to almost commoditize coaching. He says everybody nowadays nowadays has a fitness uh, subscription, a gym membership. Now it's time that everybody gets a mental fitness membership. A coach, somebody who asks you questions, somebody where you can test the ideas. And we have all this talent walking around in large organizations, the athletes, the champions, except there's not at all a habit or any policy that I found in big companies that say we put a coach next to each and every one of those champions to focus on optimizing their level of thinking. What are your thoughts on that and your observations around it?
1: So, you know... Excuse me. I think coaching is a really interesting thing. I mean, I am I am one, so that's really interesting. but kind of hard for me, but but I but I'm not a coach in a traditional sense, right? Because I'm actually much more, um I'm much less coaching and much more advisory. Like this is probably what you need to do, as opposed to and so how do you feel and what would you like to do and what are your ambitions and. You know, how can I help you get to those ambitions? For me, it is much more directive, frankly, because I'm usually getting, trying to get people from one place to another in a pretty short period of time. And they're coming to me for the benefit of my experience in one, one way or another. Um, but I think that coaching is critically important. I think that when you think about professional athletes, kind of as you mentioned, you um, they're not kind of self-sufficient people who don't have folks who help them define what their strategies and plays are going to be. Right. And so, you know, it's the same thing for corporate executives. It makes sense that over the course of your career, that you would have somebody to, to coach you through just as, just as a professional athlete was, I mean, does. So I think it's really, really important. I think it's questionable about whether, how, how easy it would be to commoditize for a variety of reasons. I think one of those is that people have very different needs at very different times. Um, And the second one is that, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who aren't prepared to invest in their personal development. People just, I mean, like, you know, when I think about the folks who come to me for consultations, um, I would probably say only 20% go forward. And it's because folks aren't necessarily ready to invest what's required to really move the needle in a, in a significant way. Um, they may do, like, if you're talking commoditization at a kind of base rate, kind of like a gym membership, and perhaps. But if you're talking about coaching at a level that, that, um, that will help people move into succession and into kind of more senior leadership roles, then, you know, it, it's, a, it's a development cost that folks have to be prepared to assume. And I'm not sure, so sure that, um, in my experience anyway, that happens a lot. Though, I will tell you that it's, I think it's critically important to being able to move through organizations. Uh,
2: I wanted to ask about the challenges, mainly how did you overcome them? So the challenges in your career, what were some of the things that you saw first as an obstacle, but then something shifted in your mind that helped you to overcome them?
1: Obstacles. Uh, You know, my biggest obstacle, frankly, was probably wanting to be in a more senior role more quickly than I probably had the capability to do. Like, I was so, like, uber ambitious, and I so wanted to be, like, you know, that boss person in in the corner office thing. Not because it was a corner office, but just because I really relished wanting to lead big teams, and um and I, so i'd say the biggest obstacle for me in my experience was ability to do that i mean like you know how quickly i could do that um and and it was a time thing because again you know when you're leading big complex multinational organizations you have to have the experience. You got to know what you're doing. Like that's not stuff. That's not, those aren't things you could just step into um, mm-hmm. because you think you have the capability. You really need to kind of build the experience. And for me, um, you know, I think it was a really difficult thing to determine how, like how do you do that and how do you get to that place? And I, and I don't really, I would say to women particularly, I very rarely because I couldn't frankly look for women to give me that support because there weren't that many that were, you know, there weren't that many ahead of me that were more senior. Um, I always kind of looked to the men that I really respected who had the skills that I wanted. So I could kind of emulate those skills. And so for me, it doesn't, it's, it's been a much more gender agnostic journey in terms of how I acquired that and who I look to to support me through those kinds of, through those kinds of um, parts of my career where I had obstacles and I was, I was challenged around what to do next. And I will also say that, like, the people who were my biggest champions were all white males. Like, they, that's all there was. And they were, I mean, hugely. And a big part of um, them being able to help me, and I think becoming advocates and sponsors for me, which helped me get around some of those obstacles, um, was me being telling my story and really letting them know who I was and how it felt to be who I was, as opposed to complaining about the circumstances in which I found myself. Yeah.
2: How did you figure out who you are? Because that's a question that I do believe, um, not only millennials, but as well, younger generations and many other people, we are being challenged with, we don't know who we are. We have so many options and that's why we have this shiny object syndrome, right? Going from one thing to another. I do believe that it's from not knowing who we are and what is it that we truly want. So
1: how did you figure that out? No, she was, so it was different for me, because I'm a generation ahead of you. <laughs> I didn't have all the options that you have. I think I'd be a mad person, too, like all of you millennials. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but I really, we, really, we really didn't have all of the options, right? People only did, like, 10 or 15 or 20 things, really. You know, there wasn't all this that there is today. And so I think that I don't actually think it's not about people knowing who they are. I think there's so much option. It's really difficult to decide you know, I think the two are different from, from one another. I think, you know, um, deciding what you want to do. I didn't, I, I didn't make it though. In fairness, like I said earlier, I didn't make a decision about what I wanted to do. I fell into it, right? I ended up doing investment banking because all of my friends were going to do investment banking and were going to Wall Street after university. And I decided that I wasn't going to do law, which i changed to after I left. I started as a, as a theater major at university. And then like halfway through it was like, oh my God, I'm gonna n- not make any money if I do this. So I changed to a law, a law kind of I was like, am I gonna be amazing? I don't know. So let me change to something where I know I can at least support myself. So I changed to a legal track, and then I hated it. I finished and did all my did my degree, but I really didn't like it. I was like, I cannot practice law, I will be bored to tears. And so my friends were all like, Well, you know, we're gonna move to, um, we're going to go to New York and we're going to work on Wall Street. I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that too. No, I mean, that was so accidental. Right? It was so accidental. I ended up being really good at what I did when I got there. And there were some baseline things I had, like I was really ambitious. I really cared about the work that I did and the quality and delivery of my work. So those things kind of served me well. And I was a, I'm a fast learner and I really like to learn. And so it kept me really stimulated because there was so much for me to learn that I was hugely stimulated. So I think those things kind of prepared me, you know, for being able to address some of the obstacles perhaps. But, you know, you just never know, I think. I mean, I know that sounds like a really daft answer to your question, but, you, you know, you, 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 I don't think you do all the time. I don't, I mean, I think you know who you are. I, I think most of us know who we are. Like, I know who I am. I've always known who I am. But not knowing what you want to do is, is different. Yeah
0: what is your vision for yourself that if you'd now imagine i don't know let's look at 20 years in the future where we are talking again and all you can say is wow
1: it's wow. a date let's do it 20 years in the future it's a date
0: <laughs> it's a date i will set a reminder <laughs> so, what 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 will happen in the next uh, two decades for you to look back in twenty years and say, "Wow, this has been a wild success! What a ride!"
1: Hmm, I think much of the same. Frankly, I love what I do. You know, I really love the work that I do. You know, by myself without being in a corporate, just kind of going out and doing the things that I love. I, I love. um I love leadership and I love teaching people how to be leaders. It's, it's, it's a great thing to do. I'm doing a lot of advisory work. So I do a lot of consulting and advisory. I love doing that because I like being able to help people fix complex solutions. Um, but I think most of all, like in 20 years, I hope I'm a grandparent. I, I'm really looking forward to, to living through baby years again, but being able to give them back. I think that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. You, you get to visit and buy, but you still get the baby time. Um, But I think, like, you know, spending time with my family is where I want to be in 20 years. I want to be, you know, kind of traveling around, hanging out with my husband, just doing stuff. You know, I will have done the hard work. I think, um, for me, I'm quite a social activist as well. I'm really heavily into the social justice space. So I think, you know, being able to be an elder in that space and help guide and challenge social change um, will probably be something I spend a lot more time on because I'll have the time to do it. So that that would be my ideal success story family social justice and activism and maybe a little consulting still
2: that's beautiful
0: very cool what role does spirituality play in your
1: life um i'm a hugely faith-based person um i really do believe that without god nothing is possible and that with god everything is possible um I am my guiding principle is around um, integrity and around hope and around prayer and meditation which I spend a lot of time doing because that's the only way that I can center myself given everything else that's happening around me and all the environmental factors. Um, I think that that We have to believe, and I don't care what it is or who it is, there's something bigger than ourselves. Um, Because, you know, I I think that nothing happens by coincidence, right? And that uh, there's a divine order to things in this world. Um, And that the miracles that happen every single day are not of our doing. And, you know, I do believe that, you know, obviously we have free will and we can, you know, make choices. But the, um, the the miracles that happen every day are not of our doing, and, and just the blessing in um, the blessing in having somewhere else to put your burdens when you need to. Um, so yeah, spirituality is a huge part of my life, you know, and and um, it's a huge part of my family's life. You know, we are our whole house is kind of like you know this is our mecca. You know, we when we step into these doors, we pray together, we meditate together. Um, but yeah for us it's it's a it's central to to who we are as people it has been for all of all of my life very cool
2: so you meditate together as well with your children
1: all the time my kids meditate all the time
2: wow when did you introduce them to meditation
1: i don't know three or four years old wow super cool that's that's there's nothing like we do now go ahead go ahead
0: It's not the first image I have in mind with uh, a a big banking executive.
1: (laughs) You have to keep your your sanity, you know, and like I find for my kids, you know, they go to, they've always been in faith-based schools their whole lives. My eldest child is 20, my next one is 13, and my next one is nine. And they've all been in faith-based schools all the way through. Um... And a part of the meditation, like, for example, when my, when my children have tests, we always meditate. We meditate in the mornings before they have tests because it brings them down and it calms them down. When they're acting crazy, we meditate. Like, I'm like If they're acting like mad people and fighting and screaming, my thing is to take them into meditation to calm them down and get them to recenter themselves and think about what's important in this life. And is it really bickering over, fighting over, you know, who ate the last piece of cheese? Or, <laughs> or is it, you know, actually there are so many things that we need to focus on in the world around, you know, homelessness and around, you know, poverty. And around, I mean, like we have so much to be grateful for. It's kind of a really useful method for getting them to refocus on what they should be grateful for, as opposed to the things they don't have in that moment. Um, And so, you know, if you can, I figure if I teach my kids that early, then it'll help them to self soothe as they get older. And when they have these kind of moments of stress, they know that they can turn inward and they can pray and meditate. And that it will, at the very least, um, calm them down. But at the very best, it'll fill their spirit with joy, which is what we really want, I think.
0: It's beautiful. It is. Are you ready for our last round? We have a special uh, section in our interview structure, which is the rapid-fire question round. Yes so we are going to shoot some words and short questions in you and you get one word to give as an answer okay i'm ready go answer by one word so leader
1: fabulous technology necessary
0: team
2: work decision Making,
0: inspiration,
1: mom,
2: curiosity,
1: always, money, please,
2: (laughs) relaxation,
1: every day.
0: What is the number one thing right now on your bucket list?
1: Sleep. (laughs)
2: That makes sense. Uh, Knowing that you traveled a lot. What is, according to you, purpose of life?
1: Oh, happiness. No, 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 no. Joy. It's, they're two different things. Joy. Joy. Joy is the meaning of life. Do I get to answer that in more than one word? Or is that like, <laughs> is that supposed to be with the one the rapid fire?
0: Well, you're, you're already at uh, 38. Right Five now.
1: words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's okay. The SLA is red and we're going to be letting this one slide. <laughs> joy. <sighs> what is your for you the number one personal development book
1: hmm the fifth discipline peter senge yes i love him
0: ah we interviewed him as well and uh, it was an amazing yes. conversation
1: He's brilliant he is an amazing amazing man he gets it he does majorly <laughs> I, I oh do
0: you
2: have a question? Go ahead, The more inspired well, you and
0: no, I have one it's not it's not on the list, but i really like to ask this question. Um what is the most beautiful company that exists in the world right now?
1: Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Oh that is such a trick question. <laughs> oh, I should have researched that one a little bit. I should have researched that one. Oh, gosh. I think, for me, it's a personal thing. It's called MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering. It is a cancer hospital. And I think the work that they do around research, around caring for patients, around... I mean, at at a time when I think most people, almost every person that you will encounter has had somebody who is touched by cancer their work is just incredible. And they're so forward-thinking about, particularly the psychological support they offer, people who are ill and survivors. So for me, I think that's probably my mind at the moment. Amazing. Beautiful.
2: Okay. Keep going.
1: <laughs> Keep going. You go always on. look
2: at me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wanted to make sure that you don't have a question on your lips right now, because um, right now, I want to ask uh, India, before we're going to mention where our audience can, stay, can go to stay in touch with you, um, yeah. I want to ask you, is, is there one yeah. message that you like to pass along that you say, you know, if you take only one thing away from listening to me, let it be this.
1: I would say um, be authentic. Like you can only be who you are like you know you may not know what you want to do but you can only be who you are and so you know be that because when you wear a mask you may not recognize it but people can see through it and if they can't see through it they know something isn't right and it's off kilter so i just say be who you are be the unique you that only you can be and be true to your own vision mission and goals that's powerful thank you thank you
0: so, you know, my next question, where can people go to stay in <laughs> touch with you?
1: People can go to www.leadershipforexecs.com. There's an info box on the website. You can follow me on Twitter, India underscore GM, or on Instagram at The Official India Martin. Lots of different things going on there.
0: Very cool. And uh, do you have something
1: like a newsletter
0: that people can subscribe to?
1: Absolutely. If you go to my website, and you sign up, you will get my mailings.
0: More inspiration. The absolutely.
1: <laughs> all the time. We try to, we're, we're in the business of inspiration.
0: Uh, I like that. Very cool. India, thank you so much for making time <laughs> available for thank your you. openness, your honesty and sharing all your wisdom with us.
1: Thank you, thank you for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure and I hope to see you both soon and I'll be watching um, with bated breath to see what you do next.
2: Perfect, thank you so much India. It has been a huge inspiration, thank you.
0: And that was India, Gary Martin. How did you like the interview? She a powerhouse or what? We learned a lot about women in business the number one thing for millennials to focus on, how to apply coaching in business, the difference between being a coach, being an advisor. There's been a lot of good stuff in here. And what I recommend you do is to take one or two things that come to mind, one or two things that resonate with you that made an impact and apply them as soon as possible. Maybe you're driving to the office right now Well, what's your first meeting? What's your first interaction? And which tip are you going to apply there? Just to see what happens. Try it out, do an experiment. That's how we learn, that's how we grow. This episode was sponsored by Earn More, Work Less. We help organizations and individuals work stress-free. To find out more about what we have to offer, free resources, we have two free eBooks available, a blog, all kinds of blog posts, podcasts, value, value, value. Just go to earnmoreworkless.com and you can learn more about what working stress-free actually looks like in practice. To stay in touch with India Gary Martin, if you like what she had to say, if you wanna stay in touch with her, learn more from her, you can go to leadershipforexec.com and register for the newsletter so that you get inspiration in your inbox every few days or every few weeks. And then there's india-gm, the official, that's how you find her on social media. We will also post all of this in the show notes so that it is very easy for you to find India Gary Martin. Thank you for listening. I hope you leave this interview inspired, ready to make a change, and do things even better, easier, faster, so that we have more time to enjoy this beautiful life. Let's now go out, make things happen, have fun, connect with each other, and most of all, enjoy this beautiful day.